You know, if you're storming a beach and you're being pelted with plastic trash, um, you know, that reminds you of what you had for breakfast the day before, you know, where is the realism there? Are you reenacting World War II? Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in again to another episode of the Reenactors Corner podcast. This is Chris here again with Ludwig and Rudy. How are you guys doing today? Fantastic. Not too bad, Chris. Thanks. The last time we talked, uh, Rudy, you were, I guess, uh, going to be moving into a new home. How is that working out for it's you? It's going pretty well. I uh, hit a few road bumps, but it looks like everything is in order now. So I think I'm closing on the house on Monday, which uh, I'm extremely excited about. I had a chance to get to uh, my storage unit and pour through some of my collection that I'm looking forward to unboxing. Um, but yeah, we're in the home stretch, so there's some light at the end of the tunnel. That's great, man. Congratulations. Thank you. Ludwig, what about you? How is the job hunt going? Have you lined something up yet? Uh, still still an unemployed uh, dosser at the moment. Still waiting for the nice little job to come through. Hopefully something soon. But it's been a very uh, it's been a very relaxed winter period doing not very much. But uh, I'm going to need the money at some point to afford this very expensive hobby. All right. So our subject for today is when good reenactors have bad ideas. Bad ideas are a reality of World War II reenacting. I think some people would think um, that getting involved in World War II reenacting at all might be uh, categorized as a bad idea, depending on your perspective. Um, Certainly... uh, I am no stranger to bad ideas, having had any number of failed projects and uh, things that that didn't go the way that I thought they were going to over the years. Um, I guess for me, looking back on it, when I think about bad ideas from people that I I know and respect, people that I reenact with, or maybe even myself... um, I kind of think about events that people plan or that they, they try to plan that maybe are uh, there. It's like a personal passion project, something that they are very personally invested and interested in. And they think that this is something that's missing from World War II reenacting. And so they try to get together an event to do it with a sort of a, if you build it, they will come type attitude, but then that people don't in fact actually come because, um, you know, a reality of, of reenacting like it or not is that most people who do world war two reenacting get into it for the same sorts of experiences. And, um, those are the kind of things, the events, the, that they like to do. They're the people that they like to hang out with. And so, um, even people might say, um, in a group chat or in a Facebook group, they might say, oh yeah, I would, I would love to do this. You know, if, if only there was some event to do it, but then when push comes to shove, are they going to spend the money? Are they going to dedicate the time to do it? And just, you know, in my experience, a lot of time, uh, the answer to that sadly is no. Um, 
what do you guys what do you guys think about well this? you know chris i think it's well, there's three things that kind of really pop out in my mind and i'm sure we can dive into a little deeper but um you know it's really respectable that people want to try and create these new events and something that's exciting and rah rah shish kebab get everyone excited to come attend to it but i feel like instead of having the if you build it they will come mentality there's always seems to be this sort of if you build it you're going to push them away mentality and what i mean by that is sort of threefold is that usually they come with more stringent uh authenticity uh, guidelines which i think there's a lot of merit to it but inevitably you're going to push people away that aren't going to want to have only m35 shell helm or you know you're not allowed to wear x y and z so I think you kind of lose some people there. Uh, I also think that when you start to create so many of these different exciting new events, all of a sudden you take a step back and you're looking at your reenacting calendar and when there was one, maybe two events in March, now all of a sudden you have four events in March. So you're, you, know, you, you divide the reenacting community a little bit and um, and when you mentioned that we all kind of join this for the same reason, like if you can create one or two events a month, that's going to be a huge draw because most people do want to go to these events for the same reason. Uh, you know, you're not taken away from other events by creating so many new events. Um, and then the third reason, I will be a thousand percent honest with you, it's completely escaped me. So if I think of it, <laughs> I'll come back to it in a little bit. <laughs> 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 Excellent. Uh, Ludwig, what do you think about this? Uh, I can kind of see where you're coming from, but in the UK, I can't think of many examples of an event that is so tailored to somebody's particular specific uh, thing that they want to do, you know, something so specific that it, it becomes a blocker for everybody else. I can think of styles of reenacting where it wouldn't appeal to a lot of reenactors in the UK. The vast majority of, I guess, what you would probably call mainstream reenactors, for whom the idea of sleeping in a foxhole for a weekend in a, in a, in a, in a field is not um, desirable in the least bit. And if they go away from the camp bed, they might get scared away. But, you know, I only really sort of work around the groups that would consider sleeping in a foxhole to be the height of comfort. So it, it's it's it seems alien to me, this idea of, um, catering to that crowd to make an event. So I, I, in UK terms, I can't really relate tremendously to it until somebody comes along proposing an event where they're going to do Finnish medical troops in the woods somewhere. I guess maybe that would be so specific as to, to put people off, but I can't think of anything off the top of my head. A lot of these events that I'm thinking of are basically all of them, I guess. I mean, if someone has an idea for an event and then the event happens that's a success even if there weren't a lot of to, in my in my opinion even if there weren't a ton of people at the event even if the event happens again they had an idea and they carried it out they execute executed it and it happened and i give them credit for that i'm more thinking like here about events that never happen of which there is an infinite quantity of these things i feel like being discussed all the time uh i can remember uh Years ago, a reenactment group that I was in had access to a battleship that got turned into a museum. And there was somebody who wanted to do like a tactical on the battleship, you know, pitch this to the um, to the people that run it have it as a public display you've got spectators you've got people running around uh blasting guns 
on the battleship. Imagine like narrow metal corridors, small entries, a situation that is hazardous just to walk through as like a spectator, never mind trying to run around on this thing with hobnailed boots and be shooting guns. It's like a recipe for disaster. And, uh, you know, that's an, an event that surprise, surprise never happened. And the person that I'm thinking of who was wanting to put this on went on to host a lot of successful events and and it is and was a talented reenactor and specifically with regard to event planning but like that one particular idea was just kind of a big stinker you know what i mean i think some people just get carried away and they don't see they don't understand why it just looks ridiculous from other people's perspectives and I, on the complete flip side i know people that who are you know highly capable of making events and have made events for up to 10 years on the trot and the events have been just based on nothing. They've literally just made up these names and scenarios for the sake of having an event with as many people as possible there, as many vehicles as possible. But you're not actually reenacting a particular battle or scenario. I mean, you could be because of the composition of, you know, German troops, American troops at this sort of time based around this sort of period of the war. You could be incidentally, but it's not actually intentionally reenacting anything. The, the, the idea behind all of his scenarios was that they were just completely made up. And I guess that's kind of from the flip side but always sort of murked me a bit well i think if you keep it keep it simple uh simple-minded you know like let's all meet here in this wooded location and have kind of an immersive event that it makes it a lot easier but i think it's easy to get caught up in the grandness of oh i'm gonna have this amazing event and we're gonna do x y and z and it's just gonna be like the bee's knees and everyone's gonna want to come to it uh, you know, when Chris, you're talking about the, the battle on board ship, so to speak, you know, as a boy, that's why I always dreamed of, you know, I see all these war films where the, the, uh, commandos are sneaking up on the ship or what have you. And so you kind of get this, uh, starry eyed vision of what the event's going to look like. It's going to be absolutely amazing. I actually was a little excited. I was like, wow, that sounds fun. But then I started thinking of all the Vivundetten Abzeichen that would have to be handed out. And my ears literally started ringing as you were describing this because, you know, when you're trying to plan something, sometimes it's easy to overlook uh, something that might be so glaringly obvious as to why an event not, may or may not work. And, uh, you know, it takes a handful of other people to just kind of say, hey, you know, this, this is why this isn't going to work. You're not going to get numbers to come to it. And, and in that specific case, uh, it's, it's a safety issue. And I sort of just had my wake up at three o'clock in the morning. Aha moment. I remembered what my third thing was, is that when you have an event like this, where you are getting so excited, usually it ends up being one person who's trying to really get it off the ground and establish it. And I think that you, they almost dive in too deep a water and then they're drowning, trying to make everything work and everything come together and it's all on their shoulders. And, they might be struggling to have people see that same shared vision and then the event never happens. I think both of you guys touched on the idea of getting carried away and, and kind of swept up in something to the point where you miss something that's kind of totally obvious about why it's not a good idea. And I relate to that a lot. Like thinking back on my earlier days as a reenactor, I remember like uh, we used to have mortars 
that we would fire projectiles out of. We would make these projectiles out of empty water bottles. And we would shoot these totally safe uh, empty water bottles that had a little bit of weight in there, just enough so that it could go the distance. You know, you could get hit in the face with this water bottle and it, it wouldn't hurt you, you know, but it was really fun using the mortars. And then we got... Um, we had grenades that we made out of like Easter eggs that you would light with a lighter. There was a little fuse and you could throw it and it, there would be a little puff, a simulation of a, a grenade going off, right? These were just um, sort of things for tacticals to allow us to use these different types of tactics or whatever. And then um, I kind of got really into this stuff. And eventually, somebody had a bunch of fireworks. And it's like, yeah, let's use these fireworks. You know, we can throw the grenades. We can fire the mortars. We can shoot these bottle rockets. We can shoot these various kinds of rockets and fireworks at the enemy. And uh, I, in fact, did that. And I don't really even remember now what event it was, but I'm there at the event. I'm lighting the bottle rockets and uh, sending them towards the enemy. It was actually, it, it was, uh, I'm not even going to say the event site because I don't want to get anybody in trouble here. But this is, was at like an event site that still has events. And uh, I remember afterwards somebody being like, hey, what, what was with the fireworks? You know, I'm like, oh yeah, you know, we got the grenades, we got mortars, we got fireworks, we're shooting blanks, we're sending it all towards the enemy. <laughs> And the person is like, well, what, you know, what is that supposed to represent? You know, what, what weapon system is that supposed to be? You know, how is someone supposed to react to that? And I was like, oh, I don't know. You know, it never even occurred to me. <laughs> like, you know, like I just was one of those things where it's just like, yeah, you know, we're going to, we're going to light all this stuff on fire. We're going to send it. And then it's, it took somebody being like, what the heck are you, what do you, what do you even can you even explain what you're doing? And I was like, actually, I can't. I'm sorry. And I never did it again, you know? Um, and there are many, many such cases, sadly. You're telling I've me... Uh, carried away like that. You're telling me a bottle rocket isn't exactly the same as a Panzerschreck round, if you if you put it down there? <laughs> well, it's like a Nabelwerfer sort of, right? Yeah. But in miniature, you know? And so if you can accept that, um, you know, you're... The, the scale is different in reenacting. Certain things are stand-ins for other things. Can it be a nibblewerfer? But the answer should be no. <laughs> you know, it's not the same. And I, you know, I obviously I realize that now. But for a while, yeah. And look, it was fun, and um, people didn't really complain. It was just kind of one of those things. Um, but yeah, it was absolutely a terrible idea. It was incredibly stupid and, and reckless and unsafe and farby and all of these things that, that I would condemn. Yeah, I've been there before. Yeah, and you know, many other other stuff related to that mm -hmm. I think of. I think of times that there were accidents. I think of times that were wildly unsafe where maybe people got hurt. Maybe people didn't get hurt by some miracle. And it was, you know, in most cases when when i was doing this or my friends and i it wasn't that we didn't care about authenticity it wasn't that we are um absolutely stupid although that's that point could be argued i guess uh it was just like i don't know sometimes there can be especially in a reenactment group i think sometimes a certain energy going with the flow um 
a guy that I reenacted with referred to it as drinking the Kool-Aid, uh, where you just kind of go along with it, everyone goes along with it, and then sometimes it just takes one person to say, hey, what is the historical reality that is being portrayed here? Is this even really a reenactment, or what are we doing? And then it can be this sobering moment where it's like, yeah, I guess that really didn't actually make any sense at all in retrospect. It didn't, but it's really hard to simulate those kind of things anyway. I mean, I've never seen anybody do it really particularly well, apart from at public shows. And half the time, you know, you mock up Nebelwerfers and your actual artillery pieces, they don't go go to... I'm assuming this might have been at a private event. Uh, they don't go to those either. But yeah, it's the kind of thing I wouldn't do now, but I, I, I certainly have done in the past. I can remember in a group that I was in in the past, we had an anti-tank cannon that was like a homemade thing made out of sheet metal. And uh, there was a a malfunction of that thing at an event. And the guy who was using it at the time took a piece of metal to the helmet that like very severely dented his helmet, his original World War II repainted helmet that he was wearing. And that was a really sobering moment. That that actually happened uh, right before I got, got into reenacting. And that guy like stopped coming to events because that that helmet saved his life. And I think maybe on some level he realized like, you know, there is more danger to this than I was willing to take on. Um, but yeah, we used to have, we used to have like real mortars, but before we had real mortars, we had some kind of like weird crudely made thing made with like pieces of, I don't know if it was a dryer vent or what it was, you know what I mean? This, fortunately, I think this is something that has become sort of less prevalent in reenacting. Maybe this is one of the few good things about social media and so many photographs from events being shared all the time. Like back then you could bring some kind of really hoke, fake, absurd weapon system to a reenactment. And the only people who would see this monstrosity were the people at the event. And, you know, kind of people who didn't like it would just look away from it or whatever. But now, um, it would be like, uh, I'm sure it would be fodder follows various pages that make fun of reenacting, right? Like when you've got the a pickup truck with a cardboard tank superimposed <laughs> on it or whatever, like that level of stuff. Oh, that actually happened. That's a real thing. But on the that subject of uh, on the subject of mortars, um, and before I tell this story, I have to be clear that I, I wasn't there. I don't know the full story. And if anybody that was there is listening to this, I apologize if I get anything wrong. But in one of the reenacting associations I used to be a part of, they had those kind of mortars that you're talking about, the sort of, um, I don't know what they were made out of, but essentially they were blank firing mortars and it allowed everything about mortar fire except the actual projectile to be simulated. And what they do is, to my understanding, and people probably be screaming at the, uh, whatever device they're listening to on this now as I butcher how this is this happens, but essentially it's a fake mortar round with a shotgun cartridge at the bottom that drops down the tube and then a pin at the bottom um, discharges the, the shotgun uh, cartridge and that simulates the, the fire out of the, out of the tube as if they've just fired a, a mortar round. Well, the problem was I always thought these things were a bit silly. As, as much as when I was a boy, I thought they looked really cool. I never actually got close to one to use one and um, after a while, I always, you know, started to, to think they're they're a little bit a uh, little bit dodgy. And one year, one of the people operating one of these things uh, had some kind of mishap where they, I think, as they described it, or somebody around the scene described it, it was a, a brain fart, and they essentially blew their hand apart with it because their hand 
took the full brunt of a a, a shotgun cartridge and it essentially blew Oof. it into pieces. Uh, they still they still have a hand or part of some of a hand. They I think they have like three fingers and a, a a thumb or something like that, two fingers and a thumb. But essentially, through using this pretty unsophisticated piece of kit, uh, it resulted in the in in that kind of injury. And there was a time when. I think people in in this reenacting group thought that there might be quite a severe backlash as a result of that, and it all went through the police. Obviously, it went through everything, and there was kind of a, an attempt, or there was an attempt to understand why this had happened and what the details were. And it, in the end, became quite clear that it wasn't the device that had mal- malfunctioned anyway, but it was entirely his fault. At least that's my understanding. Now, I guess it calls into question why you would ever want to, to do these things, but I guess some people have always thought they looked quite cool. Um, and they do somewhat, you know, in a way, simulate that kind of uh, mortifier for the public that were always watching these shows. I never have ever seen one of these things brought to a private show where they would be used in the actual context context of, you know, uh, mortifier supporting an advancing group or Zorg or something like that. They're always used for the public display sort of stuff. And um, that was probably the worst reenactor idea I've ever seen in practice go bad. Other than that, I've been, you know, in 17 years, not seen anything really bad in terms of um people being injured and and usually when they are in any way it's their own fault or it's a it's a weapon just exploding in their hands something like that but the mortar thing i think is probably the worst thing i've ever heard about well i guess it kind of brings into question you know we as reenactors is is projectiles itself a smart idea um you know sure it looks cool and maybe and this might be another topic but if you have judges at the event you can actually call out hits and et cetera, et cetera. um but we used to have a couple original mortars and uh the gentleman who owned it would get yogurt containers and do like half sand half gunpowder and the sand would give it the you know the weight to to make it actually have the velocity to fly and be more accurate and uh, the thing was really accurate, but I remember one Kanye event, we ended up uh, hitting it right on top of uh, a Commonwealth soldier's helmet. Uh, Chris, sort of like your story. And, you know, we all had a good laugh about it. We were all excited. And the guy actually came over and, you know, said, hey, that was a great shot. But that thing really, really hurt. Um, so, you know, I guess it's kind of, is it enough to just have the puff of smoke and the flash? Or do you actually need a, a proper projectile? You know, is the public even seeing it? Is it adding something to the realism of the event? I don't know. Um, I guess that's up for discussion. But, um, yeah, are they they smart? Are they not smart? Who knows? I've known some great reenactors who, you know, really great reenactors who I respect who did this kind of stuff with weapons systems that they bought. Very expensive, rare, collectible, original, crew-served weapons that they are using in a reenactment context. But a thing is, it's like when you're loading a yogurt <laughs> container into a mortar, are you reenacting <laughs> World War II? You know, if you're storming a beach and you're being pelted with plastic trash, um, you know, that reminds you of what you had for breakfast the day before, mm-hmm. you know, where is the realism there? So, um, you know, questions could be asked. Yeah, about we it. actually, we used to have a uh, 37 millimeter flat gun in our unit. Um, it's been sold off. I don't know, two or three years now. Uh, but we would bring it out to Conneaut. So when the planes would be flying over, we'd be elevating the gun and firing off rounds and calling out targets. And it was a lot of fun. The public loved it. And being close to the beach, you know, it added a sense of realism, at least in regards to the aircraft. 
but I do recall one year we were firing so many rounds that it caught a bunch of the sandbags on fire. And so I guess and that was kind of one of the moments where we thought, oh, let's bring this thing out, you know, still a, a safe thing to do. And uh, that was kind of rigged. I want to say it was a similar shotgun blast type thing for the cartridge. But, um, yeah, a lot, a lot of fun. Maybe not the smartest thing to do, but... <laughs> I, I did want to touch on, like, for me, another sort of category of uh, re- bad idea that I've seen good reenactors have, which is the alternate impression of something that is underrepresented in, in someone's opinion in reenacting, and they are going to do this niche impression maybe no one's ever done it before it's barely ever been done and they want to get other people to do it with them there are four people maybe who live in four different continents on earth who all want to do it together and you know they're gonna they're gonna get um vendors to manufacture whole categories of items that have never been made before to enable the reenactment to happen and stuff and uh this is like this rabbit hole that i've seen people go down i've 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 thought about it i've considered it i've done it to an extent and um i think it can in theory there are probably times when this has worked out great and that it has really added to the hobby added to people's individual enjoyment but i know there are a lot of times that this just has a typical ending where someone eventually is selling uh kit items at a loss and that is the end of it um if you guys do you guys know what i'm talking about yeah and actually know a handful of guys um you know and i won't say any names but they actually were trying to start like a, a more of a political impression i guess uh is the politically correct term to say <laughs> um but yeah so they had a, a cohort of people that went off and bought all this stuff and put put a really nice impression together but they were so spaced out and it is such an extreme niche thing, especially with the political aspect, that I don't even know if it was ever utilized. Like, I'm not sure if it was kind of, let's three times a year get together and sit around a table and pretend we're doing the beer hall putsch or something, <laughs> something similar to that effect. But, uh, yeah, I, I think that's one of those cases where, you know, you get excited about putting together a nice impression, something different, and then when it all is said and done, you're kind of just left scratching your head. Hang on, hang on, hang on. Can I just stop you there? You are talking to two people who have actually done the beer hall putch yet, so <laughs> let's just let's just remember yes, that. Yes, yeah. <laughs> now, I think I know which. I mean, we didn't which... do the first one, you know. Uh, <laughs> no, we the weren't. There. Sadly, couldn't attend. Otherwise, indisposed. Um, now, I come at this from a completely different perspective because I'm doing this sort of thing, and you know. Um, I like it. I, you know, I, I, for me, and I've, I've said this a million, million times on this podcast, and I'll keep on saying it. I think the best thing about the hobby is when you get a million guys in ordinary here kit portraying an ordinary bog standard here division, and you get as many people as you humanly possibly can to do it. Because the greater the scale, in my view, the more immersive, the more realistic, the more uh, logistics and everything else that you can tag onto it starts to come into play, and it makes it so much better. And you don't even have to do any shooting of anything for it to be the best weekend or week or whatever of your life, just having the greater number of people. However, if I want to build up an impression, let's say, you know, that impression might be brown, might have a bit of red in it, quite a lot of brown, cuff cuff titles maybe. If I want to do that and maybe cause a stir at a a public show beer tent, I think that's entirely down to me and the organizers who have said on Facebook that they allow any impression in their beer tent. All right, so... Let's just let's just think about that. I think you make a valid point, but 
as long as the people are still doing, you know, bog standard here, whatever it is that they do is their bog standard thing altogether, as many people as possible. If they want to spend a weekend a year dressing up like a lunatic or a, you know, Japanese coastal artillery <laughs> commander or something like that, so so be it. Nobody, you know, nobody's losing out. They are probably going to waste a lot of money, especially if they're expecting to use that kit every weekend. But if they're realistic about it, it can just be another wacky impression to add into the mix or another weird uniform. Well, for I guess person. that's what it comes down to. You know, I, I have, I would love to dress up as Rolf from the second half of The Sound of Music, but, uh, you know, if it's sitting in a closet, that you know, if you're putting it to use, that's one thing. Um, if it's sitting around just collecting dust... Or on the flip side, if you are part of a unit and you have this grand scheme that, hey, I want to create a sniper impression to be a part of Division X, Y, and Z, uh, you know, at what point is that, you know, breaking down the cohesiveness or the actual unity of the of the unit you're, you're a part of? Uh, it's I just feel like it's a slippery slope because now someone's going to want to be the only motorcycle driver. Someone's going to want to be the only Oberts, like you name it. So I, I think that when you do start yeah. dipping into those specialty impressions, that it kind of breaks down the strength that you might have had in a former unit. Um, and I, I've seen it happen where there's been some really great things take place, and I've seen it happen where uh, it's just caused a lot of di uh, division uh, within the unit. So yeah. you just have to do it tactfully, I think. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I'm not saying that people should want to do their own specific thing in in uh, against what the unit is doing, but I think that you know for that kind of once a year or a beer tent thing, if people want to go and you know and think about it, if enough of you turn up like Rolf from the Sound of Music, they can't kick <laughs> all of you out of the beer tent. So this is true. Do it to get do it together. Do it together. You can form a whole Sturm if you're if you've got enough people. If you're wearing it at the beer tent. Even if you're wearing it just once a year, you are wearing it. I've seen it where people have entire kits that are put together for events that never exist. You know, like they do not wear them any times a year. They, they never get worn. People from time to time reach out to me about the idea of doing early war or pre-war events in the region where I live or, um, you know, something where they could go as some... Uh, minor axis f force from a specific time that's some something that no one that there's no event for and so uh, they just wind up you know kind of never using this stuff because there's there's kind of you know no one everyone says that they don't like that reenactment around here anyway is so geared towards post d-day um but the thing is, is that that's what people have the impression for. And those are what the events are. And those are the events that draw the people and attempts to do stuff that's different from that. Um, mo more often than not, unless there's some kind of huge gimmick or some obvious draw, uh, they seem to uh, kind of sputter out and, and not happen. That's that's what I see happening most of the time. Mm. Yeah, I think there's a lot of merit to it, too. If you're using this oppression, uh, say, at a History Through the Ages event where they have time periods from all over and, and you're actually putting it to use. But if you're trying to actually have a four-man group at a larger event um, and you're trying to use these special impressions, uh, yeah, I can see how it's a little bit dodgy. It's just like, you know, it's something that... Uh... 
I think comes into play so much. And it's act, it happened to me. I mean, I myself, in not the distant past either, was working on putting together like a, a pre-war 1930s German army impression in the hopes that we could get enough people doing it that we could do kind of like a training event, for example. We could do an event where we're doing field training in 1939 before the war broke out. That would be a really cool event. It would be something really interesting, very different visually from sort of the standard reenactment approach. But um, eventually I realized that even if I could get six people I mean even four people doing it 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 could look cool it could be fun as as kind of um I I don't know it's not very realistic right to have four guys training together like what is this but um but it it could still be done but I realized it was never even going to come to that and so uh, this literally was just never going to happen and so I wound up selling the stuff that I had for it um without ever having used it a single time yeah you know uh, hearing the story kind of reminds me that um I should be pointing the fingers at myself as well because when I was a young man uh, a couple years into the hobby uh, I was at Fort Indian Town Gap, and there was a longtime member who came up to me uh, and had said, Hey, I actually have uh, an armored half track, and I'm planning on bringing it out into the field. And if I get this impression and you get this impression, we get a couple other guys, we can, uh, you know, we can do our own sort of thing and utilize the half track. And it actually was for, it was for the uh, Führer Hauptquartier. Uh, contingent and uh which i've said on this podcast i have actually worn the impression a time or two for like a christmas party uh but i spent all this money got this impression together started doing all the research and then really realized that i was the only one who was doing it and the guy who had the half track actually stopped coming to events eventually left the unit um on, on good terms but uh it just was one of those things where here I spent all this time, all this money and research on an impression that really wasn't even suitable for what 7th Company Gross Deutschland did. So, it, you know, I guess I am a prime example of, you know, when a good reenactor does something bad <laughs> because uh, it's, it's sat on a mannequin for 10 years, 10 plus years, minus wearing it to a party for a time or two. But Ludwig, does that, does that kind of uh, track with you at all? Do you relate to that? I've never, to be honest, I've never had the experience of, of building up an impression for it not to be used at some point. And, and doing something like Führer Hauptquartier sounds fantastic. Certainly the idea of somebody joining in and being like, oh, let's do all of this, let's do all of that, and then disappearing. I've seen that happen before, so I know, I know exactly where you're coming from, uh, from that perspective. But I have always, if I get a, an item of kit, I've always, if I think it might be used, I always hold on to it. And I, I, I guess in a sense there's a little bit of hoarding going on in terms of you know picking up different model tunics and different model bits of kit in the anticipation that they might someday be used. And so far, I think considering I haven't been extravagant in it, but so far every single time I have uh, done that, it has eventually been used. So as long as that continues, I'll be happy. But um, I, I, get, I understand where you're coming from. No, I, I don't know if this is a good segue since we're talking about vehicles and tracks um, into another topic. But when we first were sort of discussing uh, good reenactors making decisions that might be questionable, uh, one of the things that stuck on my mind was vehicles. Uh, being a member of a unit that has a lot of vehicles I've seen in the past people come in and think, hey, I'm going to buy a one and a half ton truck and I'm going to 
outfitted with X, Y, and Z. Uh, I know people who have done that and done an admirable job, and we actually utilize those trucks in the field. But I've also seen many people do that who end up spending thousands of dollars and the vehicles kind of just sit there. Uh, I know I'm going on almost 13 years of reenacting with the same unit, and we have uh, a member who he's got a heart of gold. He's a huge asset to the unit, but he's been working on building this 222 uh, armored scout car since I've been in the unit. Uh, and I will say to his credit, I know it's getting near completion, but I feel like vehicles are another one of those items where reenactors get all gung-ho and they start spending all this money and then they don't really either end up using it or they don't realize, wow, shipping a vehicle to an event is extremely expensive. Fuel is expensive. Upkeep, upkeep is expensive. Painting the darn thing or storing it, everything's expensive. So I think vehicles is another trap that some reenactors kind of fall into is uh, they have these grand ideas of utilizing these things and they just never come to fruition. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I think we could talk about not only vehicles in this sense, but basically all sort of uh, big ticket, big toys, crew served stuff. I've seen this very many times. I've seen it with vehicles where people spend, even with the most, the, the cheapest and most available of vehicles, which I think would be on the German World War II side, a motorcycle or a motorcycle in sidecar. I've seen it where people get one. It requires a little bit of work. They're like, okay, I have some basic mechanical aptitude. I'm going to figure out how to fix this thing up, get it running. But between trying to find the parts, uh, trying to troubleshoot it, trying to learn on the fly how to be a motorcycle mechanic for maybe someone who's never been a mechanic or never had a motorcycle before and you know, this isn't like a, a modern um, Yamaha or something that you would buy at the dealership. This is some some weird thing that maybe is decades old that has gone through multiple owners that has maybe been more or less converted into something else. And they just find out that they've bitten off more than they can chew. And after spending maybe thousands of dollars, they are never actually taking the field with this thing maybe i mean i've seen it where these things basically wind up getting abandoned and eventually sort of just go to somebody else somehow at a loss and i've seen it also with um other kinds of things too even like uh semi-auto machine guns these are things that require some skill to get them running right particularly mm -hmm. with blanks they require some practice they require um you know, some, some training, trying different lubricants to find out what works or, you know, firing hundreds or thousands of rounds through it to break it in. And it's, it can sort of be a hobby of its own. And people maybe don't realize that when they get into it and then they find that they don't have time for it. And so then the thing um, gets sold. And in the case of a, of a semi-automatic machine gun, they're probably making a profit when they sell it. Um, but that's not always the case, right? I've seen people really take a bath on on things before when they eventually threw in the towel and just realized this is never going to be something that's going to work out for me in reenacting. So in the UK with semi-automatics, we don't have that to a huge extent, but we do have a lot of blank firing weapons that are semi-automatic. And they involve, they can be tremendously expensive to buy. And they can also be, you know, essentially they can just explode in your hands if they're not properly maintained. It's important, a lot of people seem to neglect this, but it's important to remember a lot of these were essentially just Japanese toys 
made in the 1960s, the MGC uh, brand of, of MP40s, for example. And then they were converted to blank firers in somebody's garage, probably around the same time. And they sell for, you know, £1,000, £1,500, and they can just explode. They can completely fall apart, and they, they often do. And I had I had one, or have one, that essentially had to be completely rebuilt. And I took it to somebody who is, you know, professional about it, and, and they rebuilt it. They sorted it all out. And um, it, it was expensive, you know. It was expensive to just have a, a blank firing uh, machine pistol. But I have absolutely no expertise in it whatsoever and so I didn't you know I didn't feel in any way confident about doing it myself I thought I'll take it to somebody that actually knows what they're doing and luckily the person that did it they did a fantastic job and only got one thing wrong which I still need to take it back to to sort out with them but it's not something of a you know an actual mechanical nature um in terms of vehicles I've always wanted a vehicle really 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 badly wanted one was thinking of getting one recently um and I just don't have any expertise that would make it feasible, especially if it's a vehicle that still requires things to be done with it. I mean, if, for example, you're talking about something that's already been restored and is ready to go, then maybe that's a little bit more realistic. But if you're something, you know, something that even requires a little bit of work to be done to it, if you don't have the knowledge, then it's immediately going to be a, a money uh, a money pit. And it's a lot of times these things aren't something where you can just take it to the garage where you take your car when you have an exhaust leak or something. You know, you've got to find somebody out there who knows how to work on this thing you might have to source the parts yourself um, and it can just be it can be really challenging and uh, obviously everyone who's who lays down that money thinks well eventually this this is going to work out for me Um, but it doesn't always work that way you know another thing I'll throw out there is that uh, I've seen situations where people's lives change their financial situation changes and suddenly they don't have um you know maybe 500 or a thousand dollars in disposable income on a monthly basis that they can just throw at a hobby thing and this can come into play with something even like a blank firing machine gun where the blanks can be very expensive and easily be hundreds of dollars worth of blanks at a single event and now you know maybe your job changed or your family situation changed or you have more bills, you've taken on some other projects or whatever it is, and the event is coming around this weekend and you're faced with spending $500 in addition to what it costs to go, and all of a sudden, uh, this doesn't sound so fun anymore. You know, that's a thing that I've Oh, that's, that that's all too to. real. I can think of at least four or five individuals, and I hope that they're doing well, but who've come and gone from our unit, you know, in the last five years, just very similar circumstances. You know, it's unfortunate, but it's real easy to get... Oh, uh, in over your head or as you said you know life life happens unexpected things take place and all of a sudden you find yourself uh, drowning so to speak uh, I guess kind of a, a sort of a last uh, good reenactor bad idea thing that comes to mind for me and this is something that I've done too many times is where like I have the bad idea to drink <laughs> 20 beers at the reenactment on a Saturday night uh, before leaving on Sunday morning and those are some of uh, those are some of my worst reenacting ideas I think what about drinking it all on Friday night before you go into the field? That is an even worse idea. <laughs> that is also a bad idea. And you are cold uh, and you're wet <laughs> and you're very tired and you have a banging headache. And uh, the, you don't want to think about the enemy and or you know your hangover is banging away. So you don't think this fake enemy means anything. The only thing you want to do is crawl into the lowest part of the hole that you're in and die. 
you're not interested in this whole reenacting nonsense. You got a you got a hangover. Very relatable and uh, something that I hope that I can avoid in the future. But I'm sure there will be uh, some time again. Beer and reenacting go together like a, a perfect match until you you have too much of the beer and then it becomes a, a nightmare marriage that you're trapped in. We'll have to do an episode about that in the future. I th- I don't think we ever addressed that really like specifically like the drinking and reenacting thing. It, uh, that definitely deserves its own standalone episode, I think. Well, you did with smoking and reenacting, which I couldn't do because I can't I, I just uh, politically against it, but drinking politically for like it should be mandatory to drink. <laughs> so as a result of that one of you is going to have to come out against yeah, it. I feel like we're just going to be going through, uh, what is it, the the seven deadly sins? So it'll be sex and reenacting, gluttony and reenacting, slothfulness and reenacting. <laughs> <laughs> what happens in the Zeltbahn stays in the Zeltbahn, uh, all right? Yeah, we could, I was, I thought you were going to say you were going to go through like the seven stages of grief and reenacting too, which is something that <laughs> we could talk about. <laughs> And maybe we can, if if we graciously get invited back, can can start an episode with this. I know that uh, we're, my unit is attending uh, the Winterline event, which is an Italian Front event uh, hosted at Newville, Pennsylvania, the GWA World War One site. Um, so I have a whole bunch of great reenactors who are young and passionate, and I'd like to say I include myself in the in this mix who are actually choosing to sleep out in the trenches, exposed, um, using the Zelts and anything, the Zelpon and uh, blankets, anything at their disposal. But we have rented out an entire bunker with uh, 28 nice warm bunks. So uh, I'm interested to see how, how everyone who's choosing to sleep out in the uh, trenches is going to fare. Is it, is it a wise decision or, or will, will it be a mistake? Uh, time will tell. So essentially, my um, my insight into smoking and reenacting is the fact that I'm probably the quintessential. I took up smoking uh, because of reenacting. So the Hungarian helmet is a Stahlhelm. It's it's basically the German M35, but it's painted green. It has a bracket on the back, and the rivets are different. So they think they look at us. They're like, you don't look like Germans, but you have German helmet. Like we can fake close combat and shooting at each other, but like the. The pure horror, it's never comprehensible unless you've lived it. The Reenactor's Corner, bringing history to life. All right, guys, uh, thanks for coming on. It's been fun talking to both of you again. I look forward to talking to you guys again soon. Same to you. Yeah, likewise. Always a pleasure chatting with the two of you. I do want to say a special thank you to all of our Patreon supporters. Um, Really sincerely appreciate your support so much. We wouldn't be able to do this podcast without your support. And it is very, very much appreciated by everybody here. Um, So to Ludwig and Rudy and to everybody out there, stay safe and I will see you in the field. See you in the field. See you in the field. We love hearing what you think about the podcast, so why not reach out to us on Facebook or Discord? Just search for The Reenactors Corner and you'll find us there. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting us via Patreon. Your generous contributions, no matter how big or small, really do keep us on the air, and you'll also get regular additional exclusive episodes as a thank you. You can find details of where to find us on Patreon in the show notes. 
Thanks for listening. And we hope you'll join us again next time here on The Reenactor's Corner. Corner.